can please turn in your copy of God's Holy Word to the Gospel according to Luke as we continue our exposition of Luke's Gospel. We uh, um, last time saw Christ minister to the widow and raise her dead son. And uh, we saw that he exercised his power in compassion, delivering uh, this boy that was dead to her. And so now as we continue the exposition of Luke's gospel, Luke returns us to John the Baptist. We haven't heard from him in a few chapters. John is now in prison during this time, and he seeks confirmation of Jesus's identity. Um, Just to pick up our context, though, we will consider verses 17 through uh, 23 in the preaching. We'll uh, begin here at uh, verse 11 to regain the context that we uh, need in order to understand this text. So Luke 7, verse 11. Please give your attention once again to the reading of God's holy word. These are the words of God. And it came to pass the day after that he went into a city called Nain, and many of his disciples went with him and much people. Now when he came nigh to the gate of the city, behold, there was a dead man carried out, the only son of his mother, and she was a widow, and much people of the city was with her. And when the Lord saw her, he had compassion on her and said unto her, Weep not. And he came and touched the bier, and they that bare him stood still. And he said, Young man, I say unto thee, Arise. And he that was dead sat up and began to speak, and he delivered him to his mother. And there came a fear on all, and they glorified God, saying, That a great prophet is risen up among us, and that God hath visited his people. And this rumor of him went forth throughout all Judea and throughout all the region round about. And the disciples of John showed him all these things. And John, calling unto him two of his disciples, sent them to Jesus, saying, Art thou he that should come, or look we for another? When the men were come unto him, they said, John the Baptist, or John Baptist, hath sent us unto thee, saying, Art thou he that should come, or look we for another? In that same hour he cured many of their infirmities and plagues and of evil spirits, and unto many that were blind he gave sight. Then Jesus answering said unto them, Go your way and tell John what things ye have seen and heard, how the blind see, the lame walk, the lepers are cleansed, the deaf hear, the dead are raised to the poor, the gospel is preached. And blessed is he, whosoever shall not be offended in me. Amen. May God add a blessing to the reading of his word. Let's pray for the preaching. O holy God, we come to the preaching of the word, and we plead, O God, for the spirit of the Lord to fill the preacher now, that he would preach what is true and that is right in the sight of God that he would not preach in the fear of men, but instead in the fear of God. And we pray for all the ears that will hear now, that they would receive this word with gladness, they would be conformed to it, and whatever doubts they might have over the identity of Jesus would be erased, that they would truly know that Jesus is the Christ. And as John said so long ago, Father, we pray that for all of us, O God, that Jesus would increase, that we would diminish. Send your spirit to this assembly to make that so. And to the end, Father, that the preaching would be blessed. We pray that you would let my speech and my preaching be not with the enticing words of man's wisdom, but in demonstration of the spirit and of power, that the faith of this congregation should not stand in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, beloved, it is not uncommon for even true believers to experience seasons of doubt, especially, friends, in seasons of great trials, temptations, and difficulties. This especially can happen to believers, and pastorally you see this. It happens to many believers, especially in their last days on this earth. They ask things like, is heaven truly before me? And is Jesus truly the way, the truth, and the life? Are my sins truly forgiven? Is the gospel that is so simple that my sins are forgiven by faith in the Lord Jesus, is that truly true? Or have I neglected something? Friends, doubts can often grip us. All those truths are found in the word of God. And yet sometimes doubt can get a hold of us. 
And it's natural in this fallen world for fallen men and women like ourselves to experience seasons of doubt. And the question really is, what do we do with our unbelief, friends? If we believe and we cry out to the Lord, help thou mine unbelief, we are doing something right. But if, on the other hand, we let unbelief gnaw at us and gnaw away at our soul like a cancer, or we blindly say, let me just push my doubts aside and I won't think on them, then we are doing something terribly wrong. What we see in our text here is those who uh, have doubts, they go to Jesus Christ to have their doubts resolved. And that is what a struggling but true saving faith does. It, a, a true faith that struggles takes the believer to Jesus for answers. On the other hand, the sign of apostasy is when doubts arise to walk away from Jesus entirely, to walk away from his ordinances, to walk away from his word, to walk away from prayer, and to walk away from the fellowship of the saints as well. And so that we would be trained to run to Jesus whenever doubts arise. Our theme today from this text is doubts over Jesus are resolved when we seek him out in faith. Doubts over Jesus are resolved when we seek him out in faith. And we'll see that from our text under three headings. First is to observe the believer's doubts. Second is to see the Messiah's proof. And third is to hear of the believer's blessing. So first, the believer's doubts. Well, Luke turns us once again back to John the Baptist. We last heard of John in the third chapter of Luke's gospel when he baptized Jesus Christ. He said his ministry would fade away so that Christ would have the preeminence. But now under Herod in the intervening time, under Herodias's influence, uh, she had used her influence with Herod, her husband, to put John away. And now John was awaiting his own execution. You remember in Boys and Girls, we even have this expression, the secular world has taken it, want his head on a platter. That comes from John the Baptist, doesn't it? Right? Because Herodias wanted John's head on a platter for preaching against their illicit marriage. Mark chapter 6, you'll read more of that. And so here is John languishing in prison. And in verse 18, his disciples visit him in prison and they, they tell of the mighty works of Jesus Christ. And you see here in the context, especially this raising of the widow's son in Nain. And as John awaited his execution and the days are counting down in some way, this is a vexing thing. And so he sends two of his disciples to ask Jesus, Art thou he that should come, or look we for another? And in the 20th verse, they dutifully go to Jesus asking that very question. Now, we can ask two questions of the question being asked. Uh, the first is, what is the question asking really? And second is, why? Why was the question asked? So first, what is the question asking? Simply, it's this. Is Jesus he that should come? In other words, is Jesus the promised Messiah? Or do we wait? Do we look for another? This is how the Jews spoke of the Messiah, after all. Remember, the Samaritan woman in John 4 said, We know that Messiah cometh, which is called Christ, right? We know that Messiah is coming. And the question is, are you Jesus that Messiah? That phrase is very important, friends, because God has promised his people a redeemer. All the way back to Genesis 3, right? The one who had crushed the head of the serpent. And from that time on, the people of God, by faith, were waiting and hoping for he that would cometh. He is the one who would be called Abraham's seed, Genesis twenty-two seventeen. He is the one who would wield the scepter of Judah, Genesis forty-nine ten. The great prophet Moses prophesied of, Deuteronomy 18. The one the virgin would conceive, Emmanuel, God with us, Isaiah 7. Messiah the prince, Daniel nine twenty-five, who would restore Jerusalem. The one who would, and think of John in prison through this prophecy. Bring out the prisoners from the prison. And them that sit in darkness out of the prison house, Isaiah 42, 7. And most solemnly, the one who was prophesied to be the suffering servant in Isaiah 53, who would suffer for the sins of his sheep. There are many more prophecies of the Lord Jesus, of the Messiah, and he is a wonderful Messiah that God has promised us. 
And the question is here, but Jesus, are you, are you particularly God's promise? That's the question asked. There is faith in the question, isn't there, beloved? There's faith here. This is not a question of unbelief. This is a question of one who is convinced of the promises and prophecies of God in the Holy Scripture. And so next, then, we ask, why was it asked then? If we understand now uh, what the question is. Well, why it was asked is clearly there are doubts now being formed over whether Jesus is that Messiah. Every commentator agrees on this. The question is, who is doubting here? Some think John's disciples were the ones who doubted. And so John sends these two out to have their doubts erased. And that these two witnesses would then go and witness to all of his disciples that Jesus is the Messiah. Classically, this is the view held by men such as Calvin and Ryle and many others. On the other hand, there are some who believe it was John who fell into the doubts himself. And so he sent two witnesses to confirm whether Jesus is the Messiah himself. And to me, this is the more natural reading of the text. Matthew Henry was open to it. It's the view of the free church minister Alfred Edersheim and Reformed Presbyterian David Silversides. It's also what I believe the text to teach. And uh, just as an aside... Friends, I feel in my rights now to quote Silversides as he is dead, and we mostly quote dead men. Um, But Silversides and uh, Edersheim and many others all teach that this is John who is the one who doubts. And let's recognize first why men, because this is a good thing to understand, why do men have a hard time accepting John was the one who doubted? It's actually not from anything that arises from this text. But these men are unsure how a man so stalwart, right? Uh, uh, John, a stalwart witness for Jesus, could have doubted. We remember John proclaimed boldly, Behold the Lamb of God, which taketh away the sin of the world. He once preached, Jesus must increase and I must decrease. He baptized Jesus. He saw the heavens torn asunder and the Holy Ghost descend as a dove as he baptizes the Savior. And he heard the Father say of Jesus, Thou art my beloved Son. In thee I am well pleased, Luke 3.22. And they think it absurd that such a man so bold with so many great proofs would ever doubt Jesus. And I think this is an understandable objection, friends. It's a compelling one. But it does neglect so much of the testimony of the Bible, friends, that John is not the only saint who has had a holy boldness, an irrefutable proof of Jesus, but later was filled with doubt or had unbelief grip them, friends. You know, in that, the Bible's a very honest book, isn't it? It's a very honest book. There are no heroes but Jesus. We speak of the heroes of the Bible, but there's really one hero in the Bible, and it's Jesus. And all men are just men like us. You think on the Apostle Peter. He, too, heard the voice of God at the Mount of Transfiguration. What did he hear God say of Jesus? It reflects exactly what John heard. This is my beloved son. Hear him. Luke 9.35. And he witnessed this with two great witnesses present, Moses and Elijah. And Peter witnessed far more miracles than John. And he was at Jesus' side for three years. And when crowds abandoned Jesus and Jesus asked Peter, would you also go away? What did Peter say? Lord, to whom shall we go? And yet, you know this, Peter would deny Jesus three times before repenting after all of that. And as great and as bold as John was, a few verses here, and maybe we'll consider it next week. In verse 28, Jesus will say this, Among those that are born of women, there is not a greater prophet than John the Baptist, but he that is least in the kingdom of God is greater than he. We in the kingdom, beloved, the least of us, have a greater sense that Jesus is the Christ than John did. Because we have the full accounting of Jesus Christ before us. We have had the Spirit also poured out in more fullness upon the church. And the scriptures that we have testify of his crucifixion. John never saw. It testifies of his death, his resurrection, and his ascension to the right hand of God, ruler over all things. And you who hear the scriptures today, as we have heard it, have a clearer sound of God than John ever did. Peter wrote to have this Bible. 
is to possess a surer voice from God than hearing hearing the Father speak at the Mount of Transfiguration. And you can see that in 2 Peter 1.19 when Peter says that very thing. So you think of it, if we, the least in the kingdom, face our own doubts at times, even with such great advantages, it is certainly the case that John may have faced tremendous doubts of his own while in prison. And in that, this is an encouraging text for us in seasons of doubt, beloved. As you see, even the great men of this world, even in the church, are sometimes racked with seasons of doubt. It reminds us of that fact. And so let us understand what might have caused John's doubts so that we ourselves will prepare for seasons of doubt. Maybe we're in one now and we need to understand doubt. Or maybe, beloved, God is preparing us for the day when we might face doubts of our own so we can head them off and resolve them. First, the first thing to understand, and this has been many of our experiences, recognize that circumstances often create doubts in us. It is very easy, beloved, to say you're a believer when all seems well in the world, right? Uh, There's no persecution breaking out against you. You have your job. You have your family. Everything is going well. You have your health and everything too. But the doubts begin when we suffer. Maybe it's not just even physical suffering, but even soul trouble, where we're troubled with temptations in the state of our soul. Think of John's circumstances here. He's awaiting what? His beheading. He is awaiting his execution. And you can certainly imagine what the internal dialogue might have been, as this has been the internal dialogue of so many in times past. Think of John, though, particularly. Jesus preached what? That he has come to liberate us, but he has left me in prison. Where is he? Why is he allowing wicked Herod to keep me locked up? Why has he left me all alone? Day by day, my execution draws nigh. Where is Messiah the Prince? John asked, Should we be looking for another? In other words, did I make the wrong choice? Was I right to point all those crowds to Jesus? Have I led the nation itself astray? And sometimes intense persecution and loneliness causes such questions and doubt to arise in the soul. Beloved, this is not unusual. On the deathbed or in prison, many saints wrestle with the Lord with doubt. John was not the first, and he will by no means be the last. And how often have you forgotten yourself, right? The trial comes, and you are plagued and racked with with guilt and doubt, and you forget the very word of God that you have heard all your life, and your experience of it as well in the soul, in seasons of trial. These things happen, beloved. And all the convincing and convicting proofs of such basic truths as this, that that Jesus Christ is sovereign, right, often vanish entirely when we face difficulty. And we, we forget that all things work for the good of them that love God. And we forget that truth just as much as John may very well have in seasons of doubt forgotten what God had testified of Christ as Messiah. That is our affliction as sinners, friends. We have to be aware of it before affliction comes. And the second reason for doubt is unscriptural expectations of Jesus. I want you to remember that last sermon that we heard John preach in Luke 3, verse 16 through 17. I indeed baptize you with water, but one mightier than I cometh, the latchet of whose shoes I am not worthy to unloose. He shall baptize you with the Holy Ghost and with fire, whose fan is in his hand, and he will thoroughly purge his floor and will gather the wheat into his garner, but the chaff he will burn with fire unquenchable. Every word of that is true, beloved. But in the mind, the question might be this. Where is this fire unquenchable that Messiah is to let loose upon the earth? And why has he not set it loose on Herod, wicked Herod? Why is Messiah's fire not exercised for my sake. And the problem with that thinking, beloved, is it ignores the entirety of the promises of Messiah. For in Isaiah 53, it said that Messiah must first suffer and die before such things would happen. You remember the two disciples on the road to Emmaus faced these very same doubts. When Jesus was in the grave, what did they say? We trusted that it had been he which should have redeemed Israel. 
Right? It's like their, 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 their faith in the Lord that they once had is shaken with Jesus in the grave. But Jesus said what to them? Then he said, he hadn't revealed himself quite yet to them and it visited them. He said unto them, O fools and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Ought not Christ to have suffered these things and to enter into his glory? Friends, when we do not take in all the scripture, we will be plagued with doubt. You need to know, and I need to know, the whole counsel of God, beloved, and then we will find unbelief swept away. And a third reason for doubt, and I'm, this is not something that we could impute to, to John, so don't take it this way. The third reason doubts arise is our own personal sinfulness. It's worth reminding us of this. We saw it in the garden, right? Where Satan tempts Eve, and now suddenly Eve doubts everything that God had taught her in the word of God. And so, friends, what I want to encourage you is in this. Walk close to the Lord. Use the ordinances of God by faith. Use the scripture daily. Walk with God in prayer. Walk humbly with your God. Repent of your sin often. Your faith will remain strong and steadfast when you walk near to the Lord. What is sin? It is an exercise in unbelief. It is essentially to doubt the words of God, that his way is life, that his way brings blessing, that his way is right and true, and that the pleasures of sin, as Moses taught, are fleeting. That is what, see, it doesn't take much to doubt the very testimony of God in unbelief. And we think that this is some strange thing to the people of God, that John the Baptist could never be racked with unbelief. But every time we sin... We exercise doubt in God. You need to see that too. And a lack of repentance in our life is a lack of faith in Jesus. And so, of course then, doubts arise. But if we walk very close to the Lord, if we are constant with Him, doubts decrease. Now with these things in view, these three general applications, I could not help but think of another man in prison who awaited his own beheading. And how those principles, these three principles, produced a very different effect in him. Do you remember the Apostle Paul? What were his last words as his day drew near and he was counting down the days till Nero would chop off his head? I am now ready to be offered and the time of my departure is at hand. I have fought a good fight. I have finished my course. I have kept the faith. Henceforth there is laid up for me a crown of righteousness which the Lord, the righteous judge, shall give me at that day, and not to me only, but unto all them that also love his appearing. Second Timothy 4, 6-8. through 8. You hear the certainty in the man. I shall have the crown. Beloved, what I want to exhort you is Jesus is worthy of that certainty. He absolutely is. And because you think of this now, as we think about those three principles I laid out, because Paul had scriptural expectations of Jesus, And because he constantly walked in faith and repentance, looking unto Jesus, he endured with certainty. You know that the man had scriptural expectations of Jesus. In Acts 20, 27, what did he say? I have not shunned to declare unto you the whole counsel of God. The man always walked in faith and repentance. What did he say? Herein do I exercise myself to have always a conscience void of offense toward God and towards men. Acts 24, 16. And where was his glory? His glory was found only in one place. God forbid I should glory, but save in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ. And he once preached, what? To the Hebrews, as we consider our series on Hebrews. He preached to the Hebrews. The Lord hath said, I will never leave thee nor forsake thee, that we may boldly say what? The Lord is my helper, and I will not fear what man shall do unto me. Hebrews 13. Now put all that together with his final words in 2 Timothy 4, 16 through 18. At my first answer, he's thinking of his own trial. No man stood with me, but all men forsook me. I pray God that it may not be laid to their charge. Notwithstanding what? The Lord stood with me and strengthened me 
that by me the preaching might be fully known, that all the Gentiles might hear, and I was delivered out of the mouth of the lion, and the Lord shall deliver me from every evil work and will preserve me unto his heavenly kingdom, to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen. He was not frustrated awaiting his own execution because he knew of a truth. Jesus was with him still. And he knew what? A crown of righteousness would be his on the day that Nero took his head off. Friend, even the greatest saints have struggled with their faith. And maybe, maybe you are not right now, but you might in the future. And what you have to see then for your encouragement is that John seemed unflappable. And that's why Calvin and Ryle had a hard time admitting this was John's doubts. But there are many of us who go through seasons like this where we are on fire for the Lord. But then doubts come. Family and friend turning on us. Unmet expectations for God's work in our life. Loved ones dying, leaving us all alone. Or maybe one day, several of the saints have felt this, that just out of the blue, it seems, we are put in hospice awaiting death with no warning. So we need to learn, friends, how John dealt with his doubts, because though he had doubts, this is a man of faith, and he resolves his doubts, and Jesus does, really, in the second heading, which is Messiah's proof. And so John sends his two disciples to meet Jesus. He sends two for uh, this reason. The law of God demands it. At the mouth of Uh, Two witnesses, or at the mouth of three witnesses, shall the matter be established. Deuteronomy 19, verse 15. And he wants the truth of Jesus' Messiahship to be established by that biblical precept. And you see this. Jesus invites this. Uh, I want you to uh, remember and recall John 5, verse 31, where this question of Jesus' witness comes up again. He says, If I bear witness of myself, this is Jesus speaking, My witness is not true. See, one witness, even the Son of God's, is not true if he bears witness of himself. But then he says in John 5, 36, 37, but I have greater witness than that of John. Now he's speaking of John the Baptist there. He says he has a greater witness than John pointing to him. He says, for the works which the Father hath given me to finish, the same works that I do bear witness of me that the Father hath sent me. And the Father himself which hath sent me hath borne witness of me. Now what you have to understand here is by the works Jesus performed, the Father in heaven is witnessing that Jesus is the Messiah. This is the Father's witness of Christ whenever he does these miracles. His miracles, and it's not just his miracles, all his works. His miracles, his preaching, his perfect obedience to the law, his suffering of God's wrath, all of which was prophesied by God. All these works testify that Jesus alone uh, uh, is the Messiah. They are the Father's witness that he is the Christ because only Jesus can do these things. That's why Jesus performs the miracles here in our text in the two disciples' sight and says in verse 22, Go your way and tell John what things you have seen and heard, how that the blind see, the lame walk, the lepers are cleansed, the deaf hear, the dead are raised, to the poor the gospel is preached. In other words, the miracles that I perform confirm my identity as the Messiah. And this is the Father's witness of me in these miracles. And as John sent two witnesses, the Father uses these miracles as two witnesses. That the word of God, the scriptures are testifying of Jesus and the works of Jesus witness that the scriptures are true and point to Jesus as the Christ. And so only Jesus does the works of the Messiah prophesied in the word of God, and so only Jesus could be the Messiah. In that, you have to understand that these miracles that Jesus performs are not random. They're not randomly chosen by him. They are particular, and they point to a host of prophetic texts concerning what Messiah alone can do. These miraculous proofs. The blind see, the lame walk, the lepers are cleansed, the deaf hear, the dead are raised, and to the poor the gospel is preached. Those come from prophetic texts like Isaiah 42, 6 and 7, and Isaiah 61, 1 through 3. And you recall when Jesus began preaching, his first sermon came from Isaiah 61 in Luke chapter 4. He preached saying, the spirit of the Lord is upon me because he hath anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor. 
He had sent me to heal the brokenhearted, to preach deliverance to the captives and recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty them that are bruised, to preach the acceptable year of the Lord. You see, that is his word preached, and he confirms in these miracles that he alone fulfills what the word said Messiah would do, showing that he alone is he that should come. Now, we don't go so far as this too often, but we also need to recognize something about Jesus' miracles. They have a deeper spiritual sense to them. That is often ignored. Let me compare them to the Lord's Supper just as an illustration. These are not sacraments, but the Lord's Supper illustrates how something physical has a deeper spiritual significance. In the Supper, the, the physical bread and the wine signify deeper spiritual truths that we cannot see with our eyes, friends. The bread broken makes us remember that we need a Savior broken for our sin. The wine poured out shows us Christ's blood needed to be shed so that we can be forgiven. You can't see forgiveness, friends, but you can see the bread and you can see the wine. And so the Lord gives us these physical signs to point to deeper spiritual truth. For as earthly creatures, we are just not very spiritual. And he condescends to us in these signs. And Christ's miracles are in the same vein, friends. They fulfill prophecy, but these prophecies prove he will do a more necessary work. It's very hard for us to recognize, unless we're this man ourselves, that a man blinded spiritually has received spiritual sight in Jesus. It's very hard. Jesus says you have spiritual sight, and nobody really knows that, right, other than God and the man himself. It's hard to recognize a man who was dead spiritually is raised to newness of life. And so that we know that Jesus Christ can do those more necessary things. He gives us these physical miracles that signify these spiritual truths so that we can see with our eyes. If this man has the power to raise the dead to life, he can raise me to life and newness of life. If this man who said that I could not see my whole life can now see physically, then I see that this Savior can give me spiritual sight. It's so hard to perceive spiritual realities, friends, and so he does physical uh, miracles that we would understand that he can do the spiritual thing. Just consider the spiritual significance of the physical miracles. When the blind are given sight, we perceive the spiritually blind can have their eyes open to God. When the lame walk, we perceive that those who are unable to walk with God now can follow him. When the lepers are cleansed, we perceive that our great uncleanness, like Isaiah perceived, uh, it's completely taken away and washed by the blood of Jesus. When the deaf hear, we perceive that we who shut up our ears to the word of God now hear God in Jesus Christ. And when the dead are raised, we perceive that those who are spiritually dead are raised to walk in newness of life. Our weakness, beloved, is this, that we are more impressed by these physical miracles than the greater spiritual miracles that they point us to. Believer, if you have been raised to newness of life, you have been given a greater miracle than that widow received in the last text. You have received a greater blessing than having your son raised from the dead. And believer, what great miracles the Lord has wrought in your soul. Natural man is dead, deaf, blind, leprous, and lame. But in newness of life, you said one day as you were converted, one thing I know that whereas I was blind, now I see. John 9.25. Once the, the, the name of Jesus Christ, as we confessed in the third commandment this morning, was just a curse word on my lips. Maybe I uttered it when I stubbed my toe. And I was dumb spiritually to the Savior. But now the name of Jesus is precious as I was born again from above and my, my mouth wants to praise him all the day. My mouth, which was once dumb to the praises of God, now sing out the praises of Christ. How much better it is to be given spiritual sight, beloved, than physical sight. How much better to be raised to newness of life spiritually. How much better because Jesus promised, whosoever liveth and believeth in me shall never die. It is far better than being raised from the dead for a time just to die again and return to eternal death. 
So I want you to see then in the quality and the nature and the spiritual significance that Jesus' miracles differ from all the false miracles you see today. Whether in Charismania or in Rome. You recall in the Reformation, the papists demanded of the reformers, perform miracles to confirm that your doctrine is true. If God is with you, do miracles, reformers. What did Calvin rightly point out in the Institutes to the King of France? He said, if ours, beloved king, were truly new doctrines, then we would need new miracles to confirm them. And that's what happens. If you look at your Bible, beloved, when a new revelation from God comes in history, then miracles come. Miracles are really very rare in the Bible, if you think of it. At the time of the Exodus, you see that big cluster of miracles, but they were necessary to confirm that Moses is the man of God. And at the time of Christ and the apostles, they were needed to confirm the doctrine that Jesus is the Messiah. And then the canon closes. And miracles cease, even to the point where Paul tells Timothy, take a little wine for your stomach ache. Right? And so what the reformers told Rome is that because we return to the apostolic doctrines of the holy word of God, the miracles of Christ and the apostles are our miracles. They confirm our doctrine because we have no new doctrine. Calvin wrote the king of France, There, speaking of uh, the the, uh, Romanists, the, the papists, he said, "Their requiring miracles of us is altogether unreasonable, for we forge no new gospel, but retain the very same whose truth was confirmed by all the miracles ever wrought by Christ and the apostles. And so you found that during the Reformation, there was a great drive to expose the lying miracles of the papists. You know, the papists are the best of this. The charismatics are second rate. But if the doctrine then of the papists does not agree with the word of God, for the word cannot be broken, then these are false miracles that they perform. And so their doctrine is not true, and their miracles are phony. And the, Ro- uh, and the reformers expose so many of the fake miracles of Rome. Uh, Benjamin Warfield, if you'd like to read it, has a wonderful work called Counterfeit Miracles, where he documents all of this. Very helpful to see how the reformers debunked much of these false miracles. And fake miracles are what the Bible calls lying signs and wonders in 2 Thessalonians 2. And the workers of them are what Jesus prophesied. For there shall arise false Christs and false prophets and shall show great signs and wonders insomuch that if it were possible, they shall deceive the very elect. Matthew 24, 24. If it were possible, beloved, our Lord said the elect would be bamboozled by these false workers Uh, whether Rome or Charismatics. And that is why we are horrified when we see those who are ensnared by Rome and the Charismatics. Because the elect, uh, they will leave Rome and its false miracles and the Charismatic deception. Because Jesus said, ultimately, it is not possible to fool the elect. Well, in this, the greatest sign that the Lord says accompanies his miracle, uh, his ministry is the vital one. And it is what distinguishes true churches from those of false miracle workers. And it shows you that all those other miracles Jesus did were subservient to the greatest miracle of all. He says, go tell John that the gospel is preached unto the poor. And that is a miracle. That is the greatest miracle of them all, friends. Every other miracle is subservient to this one. For they all, as you have heard, represent something of the effect of the gospel on the spiritually bankrupt. Now, we want to think about poor in the sense of it. I will talk about material poor. Sad to say, friends, few of the material poor have the gospel preached to them today at all. That's why I was grateful for our brother in our midst who set up that dinner for the day laborers on Thursday, that they would hear the gospel themselves. You remember in Luke 14, as part of going out in the highways and hedges, Jesus commands us to gather in the poor, the lame, the blind, and feed them not only food that perishes, but that which leads to everlasting life. To hold out to them the unsearchable riches of Christ's righteousness, that they would walk with God and see the truth of the word. That their sins would be washed away and they might have eternal life. But even that poverty, though, friends, is not limited to those who are, it's actually not uh, uh, actually speaking to those who are poor materially, though there is an application there. It is a spiritual illustration, again, of a deeper spiritual truth. Because Jesus said, blessed are the poor in spirit, right? 
The poverty is really, at the end of the day, a spiritual poverty. Because there are many poor people who think that they are full, though they have nothing. And so you who are poor in spirit, listen to the good news preached again, the greatest miracle of all, that the debt we owe to God can be erased by Jesus Christ. And that the spiritual poverty that we have can be filled with the righteousness of Jesus Christ. That our empty soul can be filled with the fullness of God. You need to take this good news by faith in Jesus and turn from your sin. The gospel preached is again in these words, Seek ye the Lord while he may be found. Call ye upon him while he is near. Let the wicked forsake his way and the unrighteous man his thoughts. And let him return unto the Lord. And he will have mercy upon him and to our God. For he will abundantly, abundantly pardon. Isaiah 55, 6-7. All through Jesus. And so Jesus says to those two disciples, Go tell John that I have done these things. And through the miracles, he points John to the scripture as though saying something like this, John, you know, only Messiah can fulfill these things. Brother, put away your doubt. No, I am truly God's promised Messiah. Because friends, this is the stark reality. If not Jesus, no one is. If Jesus is not the Redeemer, there is no hope for us at all. Because only he has fulfilled specific prophecies whose expiration date has come and gone. And these are prophecies, boys and girls, you remember, that were written hundreds, if not thousands of years before he came. And if he does not fulfill them all, then, then there is no Messiah, and we are all dead in our sins and our trespasses. But friends, when we look at the scripture and we look at Jesus, our doubts are erased. And you need to learn what John did to have his own doubts erased. The man, again, as I said, went to Jesus. He did not turn away from Jesus. And this is what is truly commendable about John. Regardless of the controversy of whether he doubted, whether that was proper or not, what is proper is exactly what he does. He doesn't just close the door, close the book on Jesus. He says, Jesus, show yourself to me as the Messiah. He sought out Jesus as that poor man once cried, Lord, I believe. Help thou mine unbelief. Help me, Lord. And is Christ not so kind as to resolve such doubts when we go to him? He doesn't receive these disciples and say something like this. Who do you think you are to come to me and doubt my claims? He points them to the scripture. He points them to his works. And you need to do the same, beloved, when you doubt. You need to seek out Christ in the scripture. You need to seek him in prayer, going to him. And then you need to see how many witnesses you have to him. Why do you think you have four Gospels? That you might know from not just two witnesses, but four, that Jesus is the Christ. You see prophecies in your Old Testament so exacting that show you the very time of Messiah's birth and his suffering. Which is why those men came and knew when to come to Bethlehem. Because of these prophecies that are so exacting. And you ask yourself, how can all these scriptures be false or fake? written by many men of God, inspired of God over centuries, not just one man, over centuries, each testifying Jesus is the Christ. But also maybe you need to learn to do this too. Take a believing friend with you as another witness to search out the scriptures and to seek out the Lord when doubts arise. You know, sometimes like John, we are so blinded by our circumstances We cannot see past what appears to us to be a dark dungeon that our soul feels imprisoned in. By faith, you need to seek out other faithful guides. In this congregation, you have elders and you have faithful brethren who can be witnesses uh, for you as you seek out Christ. They will guide you to the Jesus of the Bible and will pray with you and for you. Seek them out. Well, John founded his needed proof. So let's conclude now with the believer's blessing. Well, Jesus says to have our doubts firmly resolved is where happiness or blessing is found. Verse 20, And blessed is he whosoever shall not be offended, that is, stumble in me. The sense is that happiness is found in not stumbling 
over Jesus, not having Jesus be a stumbling block to you. Because our Lord is a great stumbling block to many. And that is by God's design. And sometimes we don't realize this and we get frustrated both with ourselves and with others. But God has designed Jesus to be a stumbling block. 1 Peter 2, 6-8 cites Isaiah 28 and says, Behold, I lay in Sion a chief cornerstone, elect, precious, and he that believeth on him shall not be confounded. What a, a great text that is. Unto you therefore which believe he is precious. But to unto them which be disobedient, the stone which the builders disallowed, the same is made the head of the corner, and a stone of stumbling, and a rock of offense, even to them which stumble at the word, being disobedient, whereunto also they were appointed. Jesus is designed by God to be a great offense and a stumbling block to so many, beloved. So many are offended by the gospel that preaches that we are all sinners who deserve hell, that we can do nothing, absolutely nothing, to earn our salvation, that none of our good deeds, all of our good deeds are as filthy rags, All of our righteousnesses, the Bible says, are as filthy rags, that no works of ours can commend ourselves to God, but that faith alone in Christ alone saves us. And how natural man hates that message. If you are born again, you might have forgotten how scandalous that message is, because when Christ turned your heart, you are now those who say, that the Bible says, to you that believe he is precious. And so you forget the scandal of the cross. But the message of Christ crucified is a great stumbling block to natural man. But what did did Paul say? In the face of that stumbling block, but we preach Christ crucified unto the Jews a stumbling block and unto the Greeks foolishness. 1 Corinthians 1.23 You see that man's drive. It is a small wonder that he ends his life He ends his race undoubting in Nero's prison with such a heart as that. He knows that Jesus offends the natural man and is an offense to Nero and the unconverted Jew. He is a folly to the philosopher. He is a folly to the erudite. That is no new thing, beloved. The Apostle Paul faced it. Man finds Jesus offensive on so many levels. And for for John... There seems to be perhaps an offense that wicked Herod prospers and Messiah's promised judgment had not to come to pass yet. Today, many are scandalized by this. And some in the church, you see this, especially with the date setters, don't you? They get so discouraged over and over again, doing the very thing that God said don't do, which is to not put a date on Jesus' return. And they think, okay, now this is going to bring the judgment of God and the judgment of God doesn't come and they are scandalized. But what does Peter say? There are scoffers in his day, knowing this first, that there shall come in the last days scoffers, walking after their own lusts and saying, where is the promise of his coming? For since the fathers fell asleep, all things continue as they were from the beginning of creation. Second Peter 3, 3-4. Three what is the reason though? And this is where our doubts should never be, right? These scoffers should never be if they would know the word of God. Why is the Lord staying judgment? It is for mercy's sake. Peter continues, The Lord is not slack concerning his promise, as some men count slackness, but is long-suffering to usward. Why? Not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. See, John's impatience in prison was not good. And neither is ours if we are offended that the wicked prosper for a season today. What is God doing? He is giving them all time to repent of their sin. Just as he gave you and me, believer. He gave me 30 years to repent of my sin. And I praise God that he was long-suffering in that. Because what would have happened if Jesus had, when John wanted him to, immediately burn the chaff with fire unquenchable? All would be lost. John would not only have lost his head, but have lost his soul eternally in hell. Because the Lamb of God was slain at Calvary, had to go to Calvary. His own soul, Jesus' own soul, had to be burned with that fire unquenchable so that John and all the other elect sinners who deserve hellfire could be saved and receive mercy. And don't be fooled, friends. 
the day of the Lamb's wrath is coming. And it is coming to all outside of Christ. Peter concludes and says, But the day of the Lord will come as a thief in the night, in the which the heavens shall pass away with a great noise, and the elements shall melt with fervent heat. The earth also and the works that are therein shall be burned up, seeing then that all these things shall be dissolved. What manner of persons ought ye to be in all holy conversation and godliness, looking for and hastening unto the coming of the day of God, wherein the heavens being on fire shall be dissolved, and the elements shall melt with fervent heat? Flee to Jesus if you haven't, beloved, and turn from the wrath of the Lamb and receive mercy, free, plenteous mercy instead. He is giving you time to receive mercy, but the Lord comes for all of us as a thief in the night. And we are not all given tomorrow as you heard last Lord's Day. But he says to you who hold fast to Jesus in the face of all these things, you who do not stumble at him, he says you are blessed You are eternally happy. Yours is the love, joy, and peace of the Holy Ghost, Christ with you, and a kingdom eternal. And that is the happiness of Paul in the prison cell in Rome. Happy at his execution, happy in prison, happy in life and in death are all those who do not stumble at Jesus. And we do believe because John sent out two witnesses, that John, by faith, received those two witnesses. And so we do believe that it was the happiness John the Baptist received to have his doubts quenched when these workers came back of his and said, yes, Jesus is the Messiah. He fulfills what only Messiah can do. And so we do believe that this man went to the chopping block satisfied to know Jesus is the Christ. And he could say something like Job, though he slay me, Yet will I trust in him. Jesus ends my race through Herod, but I will awake with the crown of righteousness, not to me only, but unto all them also that love his appearing. That is your happiness, believer, in a dungeon. Blessed is he whosoever shall not be offended in me. Every doubt over Christ is resolved if you seek him in the scripture. And you will find that as you believe on him, you, you remember, yes, on the hospital bed, yes, my, my sins are forgiven. Why did I ever doubt? Why did I ever doubt? My sins are forgiven me. And he is going to receive me richly in heaven. Yes, he is the way and the truth and the life. And no one comes to the Father but by him. But I have come to Jesus and I will now come to the Father. He will deliver me to the Father and into the very joy of the Lord. And when faith sends you to Jesus in the scripture like that, your soul will be satisfied and you will say, Lord, to whom shall I go? Thou hast the words of eternal life. And that is happiness indeed. Amen. Let us leave Luke there for now. Please rise for prayer if able.